Dropout Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Adventuring Academy. My name is Brandley Mulligan. Today, my guest is Mr. Noah Diamond Stolzman. Uh, Noah is an editor of Dimension 20 and also a player on the Danger Town D&D Actual Play podcast. Yeah. Noah, thanks for coming by thanks today. Thanks for having me on. Surprised you ran out of good guests so quickly. <laughs> Uh, no, you're a fantasticus, and the fact that we see each other every single day at work in the office where we are only makes this logistically breezier and uh, is a huge get for the podcast, so thanks for coming by. I come very cheap. <laughs> um, so, Noah, uh, thanks so much for coming by today and talking with us. Uh, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit, because we've been talking about it before, about the idea of transitioning from player to dungeon master. Yeah. Uh, and I was interested in getting your take on that, because one of the things that comes up the most frequently, and by the way, let me just say that if you're watching this uh, podcast uh, on CH2, where it's been released on YouTube, you could have seen it a whole week earlier on Dropout, or dropout.tv, which also has the second half of season one of Dimension 20. It's got a whole bunch of great goodies on there, so go check out Dropout. Uh, but we've been talking a lot about, because in the Dropout Discord server, people often are talking about, you know, am I ready to DM? Yeah. Do I know enough about the game? And setting up these kind of internal rubrics of like, when I've gotten X to Y place or, you know, Z event has occurred, then I'll be ready to DM. Uh, what's your take on that? So, so I've been doing tabletop games for 10 or more years now. I started uh, in college. My first game was actually a uh, Fallout game using the Firefly system, which was, uh, it was actually a while before I got into D&D. Uh, and I actually did a lot of play-by-posts uh, -play role-playing even years before that. And I actually ran stuff uh, back then. Um, but I only in the last two and a half years actually started running tabletop, you know, formal tabletop games myself. Because it, uh, it, it always did feel like it's a very intimidating thing. You know, I did a lot of LARP. I did a lot of tabletop. It was all, always homebrew stuff. So it was just coming up with all that stuff. Uh, what actually got me into it was I had a friend who... Had all wanted to play D and D for years. He owned a ton of three point five books and then never actually played wow. D and D. He just like collected them. Uh, he didn't even own them anymore. Like he for for a while, uh, and he just got tired of waiting. And he decided that he was going to start running a D and D campaign without any any experience in the game or any tabletop gaming experience whatsoever. So he picked up the uh, the five E starter set, which is a really a fantastic introduction to the game. And he ran a campaign in that. And I got. Had, oh, uh, and I, uh, I watched him do that, and I was like, oh, wow. I mean, you know, it made it seem so easy, so mm -hmm. straightforward that he, with zero gaming experience whatsoever, could come in and run, uh, you know, a, a solid game. Yeah. Uh, so I started looking into the, the modules, which had never really been something on my radar. I knew they existed, but every game I had ever played was purely homebrew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a little while, you know, about two and a half years ago, I picked up one of the modules, um, kind of want to say it, but I kind of don't, so I can discuss it without spoiling the story sure. within the module. Sure, sure, sure. So I picked up uh, one of the modules put up by Wizards of the Coast. I actually bought it on Roll20, cool. which is a really cool platform and gives you tons of tools and stuff. And I ran an, an online game with friends who are all out of town and stuff, as, and, and the one friend who ran that other game because he'd never been able to play before. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we ran that campaign for almost exactly two years. Wild, uh, very and, fun. And wrapped it all up, and I'm actually uh, prepping for uh, the next one right now. Hell yeah, that's I what? we start uh, in like a, next week, Wednesday. Very cool. So you wrapped up, so your first campaign that you ever ran ended up actually having a completion to a yeah. story arc? Yeah. That's a rare thing. That's awesome. Uh, most people's first campaigns <laughs> fall apart, just, you know, sort of fizzle out, mostly due to circumstances beyond the control of yeah. the in-game world, you know, schedules and yada yada. We definitely have, like, months of nothing, and then we go, like, you know, get a few weeks in a row, and then we disappear for, like, a month or two. Yeah, that's definitely, I think that's most people's experience. So that's really exciting and interesting. So you started playing in college, been playing for about 10 years, two and a half years ago, seeing this person kind of take to DMing and be like, oh, like they've managed to run a game for better or for worse with very little experience. Yeah. I think that speaks something very uh, human about people that are putting these parameters on themselves of like, I'm not ready yet to DM, is that mostly that is uh, felt rather than factual. Yeah, It, it is a 
trip you're kind of laying on yourself because people jump into it and wing it and do a great job DMing right away. Um, so it's kind of that thing of like, you know, going off the high dive, like you just got to jump. I mean, and what what really stood out for me is like I don't have a problem. You know, I did I did play by post stuff. I ran you know a very successful several year play by post campaign in back in high school. So it's it's not the story stuff that that scared me. It's the, the encounter design I find to be very intimidating, and which is one of the reasons I still am with you know the modules is that you know I I, I can wing it, and I can do the characters, and I can kind of help keep the story going. But having these these fights and these stats and all this kind of stuff designed. I don't have to worry about balancing and stuff like that is, you know, and, and the dun you know, and dungeons built and planned out with all their traps and all the little blocks saying here's what happens here. That kind of framework or those rails to, to use a maybe not, you know, yeah. a phrase with not the best uh, baggage to it, but those rails really do help kind of give you a direction to be going. Yes, I totally understand that. I feel like I dodged a lot of bullets in terms of uh, bypassing some of the self-doubt by starting at a very young age. And when you're a 10-year-old child- there's no expectations. There's no expectations. And yeah. I was just a little weirdo. I was like, I'll DM, because you're 10, 10. You know, like, you don't, I think you don't develop self-consciousness until puberty. So it was like, I dodged that bullet you're, well. You have self-consciousness? <laughs> I mean, it, no, it's hard to think of a 10-year-old having just the emotional wherewithal to be like, sure. am I ready for this challenge? <laughs> You're just like, I want to play! And yeah. you just went off and did it. So by the time that I was like worried about doing a good job, I had already been DMing for some amount of time. Right. So that's a, uh, a l basically stroke of luck that I had in terms of like starting at that age. But even with that, like I, w I only played for about six or seven months before I started DMing. My, you know, I went to a group of 20-year-olds that were kind enough to have wow. a 10 year old at the table just to like be like, you know, it's like, oh, we'll teach this kid how to play if they're into it. And I think I was there for a couple of sessions, but then it was like, eh, you know, this is not like the age difference. There was, wasn't a synergy. There wasn't the a group, synergy there. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I've seen how this game is played. I'm going to go get like teach my friends how to play. And me and my brother were already playing all the time. And uh, one of our friends, older brothers, would DM for us. We were already like learning how to right. do it. Um, I was already a little like nerd about like drawing maps. I used to draw maps, not even for playing D and D. Just like I'm gonna make up a fantasy. No, I totally world. did. I, I mean, I, I wanted to be a novelist at one point before I realized I was terrible at coming up with anything more than like the first three chapters of a book. And I'm like, I don't, I don't fucking know what I'm doing now. How does this end? Yeah, the um, I would go to concepts. I'd come up with a really cool idea, and then be like, I don't fucking know. Which is why D and D is so great because you don't have to come up with everything. You throw it out there. And other people help carry it the rest of the way. You don't have to do everything from wholesale. That, that collaborative storytelling is so fantastic. It's, I think that's very true. It's interesting to talk about the different things that are challenging because uh, uh, I think a lot of people are nervous about the creative enterprise or the improvisational aspect of DMing. People are like, oh, am I going to be like good on my feet? I can't do like NPC voices or whatever. But the encounter design aspect is interesting. I haven't heard that before. But that is a very stressful part of DMing because when you're designing combats and encounters for your PCs, these are the moments that could kill a bunch of your players' beloved yeah. characters. Um, and the guidelines for, well, I'll speak to five, uh, 5e right now. The guidelines for encounters in 5e are good for the most part, but I think do produce battles that are like for me, if a battle is not deadly in 5e, yeah. it's almost going to be anticlimactic. I mean, and also I mean I think a, an issue is that, you know, um, action economy affects that so much and that's not really in, factored into an encounter design. Like you can have someone who's a CR that's deadly and it's just one person and they're just going to stomp that one person, but if you have you know a hundred you know mobs that are that same challenge rating altogether, it's gonna it's gonna be a wildly be different fight. Even if they can take them each of them out in a single hit, it's actually why the legendary action mechanic is. I think the best. Yeah. I think the legendary actions are whichever designer created those in the five E team uh, needs Crawford to, or Merle's. Crawford but, or Merle's probably. Uh, that to me is the most exciting way to make things like dragons. I'm, and I'm gonna feel really bad if it wasn't Crawford or Merle's, and there's someone that's just like, motherfucker, motherfucker those guys get all the fucking. Um, 
Uh, no, it's like a really incredible mechanic to actually make things like dragons and liches yeah. that do get screwed over by the action economy uh, actually stand out and matter. I've heard 4E had a, like a minion mechanic that I think I think I've heard a lot of people reference as being a cool thing. I don't I don't know the specifics of it, but I, I like when people mine four E for good ideas because there was some cool stuff going on in four E. Proficiency was a four E thing. Yep. Um, other things that I can't think of off the top of my head right now, but like there was a lot of cool concepts in fourth edition. I really like where they were going with really trying to streamline and. and Overhaul the game. I think they took it so far that it stopped feeling like Dungeons and Dragons. Did Forey have the 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 cantrips never run out mechanic th- in it, or was I that was that that might have been Pathfinder? Maybe that was Pathfinder. I know it wasn't three point five, and that was always the biggest bummer. I always used to house rule that you can cat when you prepare a cantrip, you can cat in three point five, you can cast it as to, to your level by preparing it one time because it's like why is I this mean, archmage running yeah. out of detect magic? I, I'll, I'll say I hated spellcasters in three point five. Mm. I Almost never played a spellcaster, um, both because of, you know I, I'm bad at resource management and it always gets me really stressful, but also because of the the Vankin, which I'm 100% pronouncing wrong. Uh, but the the prepared spellcasting system of the specific each spell slot has a preassigned spell to it. Yeah, that that I always was like I don't know exactly you know I hated it. I, the Vantian casting, yeah, where, the where, Vantian, Thank you. Yeah, the where the the spells are like bullets in a gun. Yeah, and it's like I'm holding these weird pieces of arcane ammunition in my mind. Yeah, and and so like I think I, I played I played a warlock once and I played a, a warcaster who have spontaneous spell casting like sorcerers and but it was never something I always played martial classes in in 3.5 and now in 5th edition with the way they've overhauled spell casting I honestly almost never play not spellcasters now. It's like my, my preferences have completely wizard is my favorite class. Wizards are so good. They're great. They're so I love fun. wizards so much and I love when there's wizards in a campaign. There's the way five I've I've tweeted about this, but the way that five E is designed is the stats that are the most favored are strength, decks, and charisma. Because I think strength, decks, and charisma share something like the majority of hero sure. classes and use one of those three. And then it's like Cleric and Druid use wisdom, and then intelligence alone has wizard. Yeah, and it's like, uh, was it uh, Eldritch Eldritch Knights? But they don't. Yeah, really well, care. So, some of them use them as secondary, yeah. but in terms of the yeah, primary sure. stat. So what ends up happening is because strength, dex, and charisma are so heavily weighted as primary stats for heroes, adventuring parties are all hot, strong, and dumb. <laughs> and that explains a lot of yeah. how adventurers there, behave. There, there is a movement to, and I, I think. I think one of the designers actually tweeted that this was uh, something they considered was making warlocks an intelligence-based class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's a movement. I think one of them was like, "Yeah, go ahead and do that if you want." Of signing off of, of an alternate version of warlock that's on paper exactly the same and is just intelligence instead of charisma. I like that. that. That they're more of a ritualist, you know, studying, you know, book nerd style warlock. It's also cool because if it gets to the idea of those patron warlock relationships as being contractual yeah. rather than necessary because you when you say it's based on charisma it's like okay it's like force of will like I'm better at casting warlock magic because I have like a stronger force of personality as opposed to like oh I am cleverer and more yeah. able to take advantage of the magic being granted to me. In any case, the nice thing about having a wizard in a party is that uh, there's someone to like solve your puzzles and and like you know, I will say as a DM, there are certain things where it's like sometimes you don't want like sometimes I will get questions from people being like, what do you do if PCs solve your puzzle too early? And I'm like, that's never the problem. The problem is always you see strange clues. Everyone rolls. Well, we all rolled a bunch of dumbasses, so no one gets it. And then you're like, okay, you go back to town. Well, so, so I had a DM, a good friend of mine, Colin. Hi, Colin. Uh, <laughs> and and he would never design solutions for his puzzles. Not never. He but he wouldn't design solutions for his problems. He would put something interesting on the table, and then he would just sit back and just watch us fuck with it yeah. until he felt satisfied. He's like, yeah. That that one works. He until we did something that he enjoyed and felt was applicable, and then that would be the solution to the puzzle. It's really interesting. It's very fun when you think about um, when you play a character towards a high stat, whether they're optimized for their class build or not. It's a player telling you, "This is what I think my character should routinely be good at." Yeah. And because of the narrative element of D and D and theater of the mind, a character that's really dexterous or really strong gets to 
experience those successes very viscerally through the narration. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my big strong character fights really well and throws stuff around. Well, how do you you can't you can't just be like it's not fun to be like I'm just smart. I'm just I talk at the person. I roll charisma. I talked good. Moving right. on. That's that's not entertaining. Yeah, it's really. I, I think that's always, that's always been a, a hard thing. Is like, what if you're a shy player trying to play a charismatic character? How do you play that out? Because it's not um, narration feels better suited to describe feats of strength than feats of charisma. I've, I've, I've seen people go in like if you're if if you have a really hard time role playing or speaking in character and like oh I'm going to give this speech this persuasive speech you can you can switch it into a third person narration you can be like you know Radagast the Brave I meant to come up with the original name that's not an original name <laughs> sorry Radagast. Tolkien uh, but you know you can say I you know my character goes up to the guard and he he talks to him and he gives him an impassioned speech pleading with him about how you know, we're we're out here and we're in the cold and we really need to be let in and and and, and kind of spieling it, it's easier to do like that the almost like a bullet point. Like you can still go into all those elements of what is persuasive about my argument. How is my character being persuasive without having to be as persuasive as your character and without having to have that on the spot having to talk in character and be extemporaneous in that regard. With charisma, I think that's very true. I think for players, you can go into third-person narration or find some other way of communicating without having to embody a trait that you don't feel confident in in yeah. your IRL experience. Because at the same time, when someone's like, I have a ton of charisma, I walk up and say, hey, let me in, and then they roll really high, and then that works. That's just because the numbers say so. Like That's not fun either. So anything that can really facilitate that. Right. I think as a DM, you can also hit the other side of that coin by let's say that someone goes up and is like, I'm going to roll a persuasion check or a deception check or something like that. They go up and roll that ability check. As a DM, you don't sometimes want to narrate past it or narrate through it like you would with a feat yeah. of strength. You want to know actually what was said. But I think as a DM, you can support your player. So let's say that you have someone who's a very shy player, IRL, but they're playing a high charisma character. They roll a nat 20 on their per, you know persuasion check, and they go I'd up. I'd love to make your nat 20s do cool shit. Uh, yeah, oh god. I want nat 20s to be <laughs> enormous successes. So they roll a nat 20, and the player comes up, and you're like, what is the, what is your, you know, tiefling bard say? And they go like, um, please, please let us, please let us into the dungeon. And I think as a DM, you, you can try to have your cake and eat it too, of honoring the manner in which the PC did role play that, but also, uh, you know, reward the nat 20 and reward the investment of those charisma skills. So if someone does like have a hard time, you know, embodying those like charismatic speeches, they go like, please let us into the d dungeon. You just go like, oh, are you, of course, of course you sweet tiefling bard of like going like, yeah, that wasn't like flashy or yeah. grandiose, but I can still reward there, your. There, there's more ways to be likable than just being handsome and being able to fuck everything. Yes, exactly. Which is, which is what I think a lot of people think charisma is just the, that one I love alternate, representation. Yeah, I love alternate takes on those stats. Of if charisma is not like suave, debonair, like, but it's like, oh, everyone just loves you to pieces. I mean, hey, <laughs> Fabian had high strength, but he wasn't he wasn't ripped. He had a swimmer's body. Yeah, he was a high dex character, exactly. And the, all the combat was sort of uh, uh, put into that context. Um, Speaking of like rewarding players and how that those kind of activities go, we were also talking before the podcast started about the idea of being mean. Yeah. And I was cruising the Discord earlier today in anticipation of doing the podcast, and there was a conversation around like high death play where like characters can die at any moment and people advocating for that. And I actually have been in those campaigns before where it is like no mercy. What is the benefit to the idea of being a mean DM to you? And why do so many DMs struggle with that? So I, I struggle with that. So the, the campaign I just ran is a, a big, heroic, globetrotting campaign. And, and so the tone I gave it was they were very successful. You know, they did well. I was, I was pretty light and lenient with them. Uh, right now I'm prepping for Curse of Strahd, which is a horror campaign. Uh, and, and I've you know, been explicit with them. I've been like, I want to, I want to be harsher. This is going to be difficult. You're going to have to work to survive in this game. Uh, and I actually, I actually sent out a pregame survey, and and one of the things was, how do you feel about uh, character death? And kind of there was, there was, you know, a few options of like, it should just be any die, any moment could lead to me dying, or any any die roll rather, uh, or you know, it needs, I need to do something stupid that leads to me dying, or you know, or 
you know, I don't want to ever die, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. They, and they've all obviously, because they're invested, you know, involved in, in this campaign, they know the direction. One of my players actually said, uh, you know, she was saying, I don't mind dying, I just want to see it coming. Like, I just want to have a moment to disassociate or, or distance myself from the character. It needs to be a moment, like, it's just not all of a sudden you're dead, and, like, that's a very jarring and difficult moment for her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for, for being mean, like, it's it's really, I want to see everyone succeed. I want to see them do great. Like, I, I ran, I ran, so the beginning of Curse of Strahd is a, is a standalone module called Death House. Mm-hmm. It's a very deadly and difficult campaign. I actually ran it for a few people here at work since you got stolen away from us and you're not running the office game anymore. Brutal. Brutal. Dungeon 20 fans, it's your fault. You stole him away from us. And if you want to make out an apology, just write <laughs> to every single work email at College Humor <laughs> uh, and let them all know how you feel. We'll put up a list somewhere. But so, so I went into that, and that for me was a warm-up in, in, in a few ways. One, of actually running this module I'm going to run again with the full campaign, but also of, of trying to be harsher and meaner because it was a one-shot. And they didn't need to come out the other side unscathed. And I actually ended up killing two out of three of them. Two, two of them did not make it out alive um, and will appear in the redo of it with the full campaign. Very fun. But it's, it, even in that context, it was really hard. You know, they're, they're fighting you know, the big bad monster at the end, the very difficult, if not impossible, to defeat monster. And two of them burn their last spell slots. They're on their most powerful spell at them. And in both of them, it makes the saving throw exactly. And, and I'm sitting there going, sorry, it, that doesn't do anything. You, you're completely out of resources. Congrats. And like I, it, it's, yeah. it's a really tough position to be in. To be that the meanie at the table. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So first of all, what is it people are talking about? Because sometimes people can talk past each other on this. Uh, uh, I like to find consensus between different styles because there are some voices that'll be like, like, oh, it's a dichotomy between DMs that respect their players and give them what they want and it's a collaborative storytelling or you're this harsh adversarial antagonistic. And of course the truth is actually somewhere in the middle yeah. because the things about D&D, like when you're telling... Like, why aren't we writing a book together? Well, there is why aren't a. Why are we writing a book together, Brandon? We should talk about that after the podcast. Okay. Hold up. Um, uh, why aren't we writing a book together? Why are we incorporating dice? Why is there a game aspect? Well, the game aspect punctuates. Like, you, we need, all, you need to be able to fail. Yeah. It's not a there game needs, if you're not able to fail. There's not a game if you're not able to fail. And everyone knows that the purest joy, everyone who's played this game knows the purest joy in the world is when you need that nat 20 and it shows up. And the success is meaningful because of the weight of all the failure on it. So sadly, there is this element of, when we talk about a mean DM, what we mean is the DM has the responsibility to execute the will of the dice. And when bad luck occurs and a situation arrives, or sometimes to execute the will just of cohesive narrative. Let's forget about the dice for a second and just say a PC wanders into the lair of a monster that is that they knew was there and has the ability to kill it, and it would break the credibility of the world for the PC to survive this encounter. And those are really hard calculations that you're making with a certain emotional mathematics where you go, okay, in this moment, my PC does not want to die. If they survive, is irreparable damage done to the authority and meaningfulness of the dice and the mechanics of this game? Or is irreparable damage done to the cohesiveness and internal logic of the narrative world we've built? And I think that your metric for meanness as a DM is it can never get to the point where the credibility of the world or the authority of the dice is sacrificed to preserve the individual wants of a PC in that moment. Mm -hmm. Now, that barrier can be different for different groups, but it's always somewhat there. Even in the most RP-heavy or cuddly groups in the world, eventually you hit consequence. Right. but no, that's, that's great. Yeah, it's and it's just I, I especially even with tactics and like enemy decisions of like you know it's it's so much easier as DM to be like yeah they shoot the meteor target yeah there's that and some DMs will be like they're gonna always target that wizard in the back they're gonna beeline them with their strongest hit they're gonna know and they're gonna take them out of the fight right away and and, and that's I mean that that's a very you know if that's what your group is doing that's fine but that's a super tactical and antagonistic way to play 
Yeah. And it, it's that finding, like, I, I do have a hard time, like, oh, shit, they're really low on health. I better not throw an attack their way. That's going to take them out of the fight. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. Yeah. Like how do you, when, when do you want to do that? And I think, again, what a lot of this comes down to is the sto- is what's the game you've all agreed to play? Yeah. Um, in a game that is functioning by metrics and tones that are more closely related to what you would call like a narrative high fantasy story, I think it is okay to have uh, the tone of the battle dictate the choices of the enemies. It's fun sometimes when you know a bunch of dumbass goblins don't fight organized or well. And you know, to be like, no, I always have to be optimizing my NPC combatants to be doing the most damage to the party. Does that make sense? Are the NPCs well organized and evil? And on the flip side, I think it is fun. Like I've had games where it's like, oh no, there is a lot of collaboration between PC and DM. And then you throw a real scary villain at them, and that villain is doing stuff like locking down spellcasters, yeah. hitting the people, like like not dealing damage evenly, but like attacking the weakest links. And the PCs feel that tone of dread set in, but the dread is appropriate to the story. So in that way, it's like, oh, the DM is being meaner, but it's justified yeah. according to the stakes of the campaign. That, that's what I'm really looking forward to. So this game I'm prepping, Curse of Strahd, it's, it's the players all stuck in the realm of this vampire lord, Count Strahd von Zarovich. And so I'm so he is a recurring antagonist, and he's you know, centuries old, he's a, a military leader, he's a powerful wizard, and he's a vampire. And so he doesn't fuck around. Yeah. I, sorry, he does fuck around, but like he can have fun because he can he can play with them. They're his his playthings and his toys. And so being able to come in with this guy and just bat the players around mm-hmm. is something I'm really looking forward to. And feeling more role playing him basically and turning it almost into that player versus DM because this, he's almost like a, a DM character that I'm specific specifically controlling and going in and seeing like how much fun I can have like just knocking the shit out of my players. It's something I'm really looking forward to. Hopefully, I, like, channeling, using this one character as that kind of vessel that I can imbue that energy into. And I think that, again, if you've set it up ahead of time and said, hey, this type of play is going to be extremely lethal, then that's great. And the characters will come in expecting that. And I love what your player said about, like, give me a second to dissociate from the character before they die. I think that's a good thing. I think if a PC is going through a death, uh, a death scene, like slowing down time, giving narration. Because it's all about just like, people don't like cognitive dissonance and having things feel jarring. And if you've been like, wait a second, I thought we were in Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, Boromir's death scene is done in slow-mo. And he gets a lot of time to da 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 So it's like, yeah, don't put a horror movie death in a high fantasy series. Make sure that your tone, I think it's always about lining up tone. Because I remember when some, I, I played a game of Call of Cthulhu and the game master was very, you know, nuts and bolts about like, hey, you're all going to fucking die. And so what happened in that, but here's the risk you also run with that is the game master said like, you're like, like this is Cthulhu, don't get attached to your characters. And I was like, okay. And I made a character with purposefully like incredibly low sanity. Because I was like, because it's in Cthulhu, like you go, you know, you go mad from the horrors of these elder evils. So we started gameplay and it's like, all right, so all of you guys are in this area, you know, near Miskatonic University or whatever. Uh, Introduce yourselves. People were like, I'm so-and-so, I'm a reporter for this. And it got to me and I was like, my name is Sam. And people started laughing because I was basically playing the guys like, oh, he's already. (laughs) Were you the only one that survived? Please tell me you're the (laughs) only one that survived that campaign. Because you knew you'd seen some shit, and you were like, "He'd seen some shit." Uh, well, I may have said this on the podcast already, but my fa- there's uh, in in Arkham Horror, just the big prestige board game. Yeah. Uh, uh, I played uh, that once in the Lovecraft Mythos. My fucking favorite character in there is a guy. I forget his name, but it's it's like Ox or Hank or something like that. But his, his every investigator has their own like superpower, and his superpower is he's so dumb that he doesn't <laughs> lose sanity oh because God. he doesn't know what he saw. He doesn't know that it's wrong. He doesn't know that it's wrong. So some fucking hound of Tindalos comes out of a corner into some weird geometric horror and he's like, that dog's sick. You know, and then, <laughs> that dog is sick. And like, no, Hank, that's an eldritch horror. And he's like, okay, that dog needs to go to the vet. You know, like, and we're all having a ball, right? Yeah. That, so, because uh, uh, that's, I think that's the issue for me is 
the problem I have as a player with those high lethality campaigns is if I know not to get attached to my character, you are cutting off one avenue of fulfillment for me as a player, which is to get attached. So what I'm going to do is probably disassociate in some way and play a more comedic character. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm playing a character that I'm like not as attached to because I've been told there's a high risk of them dying, then, you know, I might play a little bit more munchkin -y. I'm like, okay, this is a tactics game. Yeah. I think that the, the only time as a DM where going mean goes too far is if you're like, no, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to kill a lot of characters and have you care about them. And if you're going to do that, you should just play Hackmaster. <laughs> because Hackmaster, you're explicitly not, you know, you're supposed to bring four character sheets to the table, yeah, because you're not going to make it through, and it's in, in inherently antagonistic. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's jump into some of these okay, audience, audience questions. <clears throat> uh, we harvest our audience questions from our Discord server. Fresh picked. Fresh picked. Mwah, que belle. <laughs> um, these. Uh, questions uh, come to us from our Discord server. If you want to uh, ask us some questions, go ahead and head over to uh, Dropout's Discord server when you sign up for Dropout. Uh, this first one is from Thorfinnar. Thorfinnar. Um, I'm interested in how other DMs deal with item slash wealth distribution in your games. Do you ever regret allowing your players to possess items of great power or too much money? Thanks, Thorfinnar. Uh, well, in 5e, I feel like money's I mean, your player in fifth edition, your players are going to have too much money. I think that's just inherent to the system. There's not that much stuff to spend money on, and they're just going to gold's just going to pile up, and then you know they're going to just start buying towns and castles and shit like that. Which, which depending on the type type of, type of game you're running, that can turn into its whole a whole new campaign. That can be just this resource management, town building. See, so all of a sudden you're playing Civilization on a board game. Um, I have had, you know, troubled with, uh, I had one trouble with a magic item I gave out. This was in the campaign I just ran. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I asked for this. There, there's a very rare magic item in that game. It's called the Oath Bow, which is, uh, if you're, I if know, you're familiar, with, familiar the with the Oath Bow, bow yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a bow, it does some extra damage, and you can, you can choose a target, and you can swear them as your foe, and you get advantage to attack them, you do extra damage, the arrow avoids cover. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's this elf and bow, and one of my players in this in this campaign, I saw it in the book. I was like, "Oh, this is really this is really cool." One of my players was playing a, a half elf arcane archer. I'm like, "He'd have a lot of fun with this. This is a really cool item." And it shows up if they go to a specific place. They have a certain percent chance of encountering a patrol. When they encounter that patrol, they have a certain percent chance of the leader being there, and he has the oath bow. And man. I went real out of my way to make sure they found this oath. But I didn't roll. You know, I was like, they're going to go there. The patrol is going to be there. The guy's going to be with the patrol. They approach it from the air, so they won't even meet the patrol. I'm like, mm, it's too thick. You have to approach from a little. Like I'm pushing them to get this bow, mm -hmm. uh, and he gets it. And he, you know, he, he wrecks that face with this this goddamn bow. Yeah. You know, he's he's the arcane archer with this thing, and then there's like a warlock and a sorcerer and a rogue, and they're all doing cool stuff. But he and he's just his turns coming around. And he's just laying at, waste. You know. Yeah. Uh, and, and in the, the finale of this campaign, they get a magic item. They get, uh, it's a potion of, of giant size. It turns them into giants, and they're fighting, excuse me, they're fighting the dragon, because this is a very on-the-nose climax for a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Uh, and, and I think I had seen a thread on Reddit. Someone was like, hey, if they drink this potion, which triples the damage dice of their weapons when they're enlarged, does it affect the extra damage from the oath bow? And people were like, oh, be careful. And I was like, fuck it. I gave him this awesome magic item. I'm going let to him, let him go ham with it. So he quaffs this potion. And, he's fight and I made the wrong ruling <laughs> there as he unleashes just this triple, the full might of this triple damage oath bow. And, I think, and he's arcane arch, so he's throwing his magic stuff on it. And I, like, I guess those get... Guess those all get tripled too, all your magic arrow shit, and 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 you know I, w I was afraid to be too mean with the dragon, and I had I had the dragon kind of stand there for a few rounds and kind of be big and intimidating before really doing like the burrowing and the, and by the time I was like okay this it's time it's gonna go crazy the, the dragon's gonna be super mean and tactical and burrow underground and, and then you know the burrows underground and pops up and he just shoots it in the face and it's just it's gone there's just no 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 fight no fight left. It's really interesting. So 
I am very effusive with praise for 5e on this podcast. I think it's incredible. The only thing about 5e that I wished we could go back to about 3.5 is clarity around magic items. Because they got real chill with magic items in 5e. They're like, hey, there's some various rarities. We're not going to give you a GP value. And like, use them or don't. Toss them in if you want. Here's like kind of the appropriate levels for the various rarities and like it's all chill. And you're like, oh, but the like 3.5 for being completely dependent on magical gear, yeah. I did find to be more balanced as a result. I, I, I do like the idea. So so I mean, I guess this to answer the question is, is I think 5e does, does make you be stinger because the game is designed, it will work if they have no magic item. Yeah. So I think that's something very important to keep in mind, that any, any magic gear is inherently a bonus. Um, here's something interesting. Uh, if you're worried about game balance, um, remember that um, it feels really good to get a magic item that uh, specifically gives mechanical benefits to the thing your character is supposed to do. You're like, I'm a barbarian, I have a big magic axe that does extra damage. Cool, that's great. Actually, I think some of my favorite magic items that I've received as a player, and the ones that my players have enjoyed the most, I gave it as a DM, were things that weren't uh, munchkin-y or min-maxy, that weren't about making a broken character, that actually had powers that were almost unrelated. Like, I remember my, uh, I had a character that was a sort of like water-affiliated uh, character. They got a ring of water breathing. That's never gonna break a game for a character to be able to breathe water. And it was the fucking best. It made me feel like, oh, my character should be able to do this. Yeah. So I would say if you're worried about game balance and you're worried about, and I'm going to look at the wording of this question again real quick. If you're worried about game balance, give magic items that uh, aren't about adjusting combat, but are like, what would make this character come into their ideal yeah. self? I, I was going to say something similar. It is, I mean, stuff that gives, actually, like the Oath Bow is very cool and does extra damage, but the stuff that lets you do cool things, like a boots of striding and springing and stuff like that, that like, Reshape reshapes the battlefield, as it were. Yeah. Like, and that, and that's why, like, whenever I play a wizard, I don't go, I'm gonna just blast things in the face. Because if I want to roll a bunch of dice and hurt people, I'll play a fighter. Yeah. It's those utility, those interest, those interesting applications that are gonna be so much more fun and memorable. Yeah. And I would say too, like, ask yourself as a DM if, when you're giving a power out, uh, you're giving a power out to a player, whether it's a magic item or a boon, or you're giving them a lot of money. Like, I don't think it's a problem to give PCs a lot of money if you don't have like magic item stores in your world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and then but also like if you do give them a you know, the those those things that give them cool abilities are gonna have a harder time breaking the game. But they might break the game. It might there might be some time when you have a boss fight and they're able to hit you know, click their heels together and zip across the battlefield and interrupt them before they do anything. And that that is gonna break your encounter design, but it's a so much more interesting way for it to break your encounter design. It's not like, oh I just hit them and I roll really good. I did way more damage than you intended and now he's dead. That's boring. But I, you know, activated my magic item and I flew across the battlefield and I tackled them and interrupted this ritual. Yeah. Like, sure, that that's the encounter in both cases was over in one round and you didn't plan for that. But that, that's narratively interesting. That's a very cool, it feels like an accomplishment. Yes. It feels earned. Feels earned. And I think also things can be overpowered and not fuck with your plans as the DM. For example, I was just, you know, um, Going back to something I was talking before about like how I often want my PCs to find clues, uh, giving an item that allows you to cast a spell at will is always very powerful. Yeah. Limitless magic is always very powerful. I give out items that allow detect magic at will almost without thinking because I'm like, why don't I? Yeah, I've, yeah, it's gonna make the story better if you notice the crazy shit that I yeah. seeded in there. Take detect magic at will. That's fucking fine. Um, or like, you know, when people Cause, are- Because yeah, that's only gonna lead to finding more stuff. Finding more cool story stuff. Or like speak with animals. And people are like, whoa, if you're you, like, careful, don't give out too much speak with animals. And I'm like, what's, what is ever gonna be- I mean, you'll, you'll punish people for being able to talk to animals in your games anyway. <laughs> so so it, that, that comes with its own consequence because those animals will never ever stop talking. Brennan's animals don't shut the fuck up. In the office game, uh, our friend Melissa uh, was a uh, powerful druid who had a talking horse as her companion, and the horse was a military horse who was very proud of his lineage. <laughs> uh, and so constantly, she was like, can I just speak to animals all the time? And I was like, 
Fuck yeah. So this horse was constantly like, I am the proudest and bravest horse of all horses. My lineage is noble. My pedigree pristine. And uh, why would I ever want to limit that? I mean, I, mean, I, I was playing a furbog and I could, I could understand him too. I think we, we just yes. realized that that wasn't correct to the rules, but you went with it because you wanted to punish me. <laughs> uh, and and I, you actually gave me disadvantage on a perception check on a night watch at one point because he was just... The horse wouldn't shut sh- up? Just wouldn't shut up. He was talking in my ear all, all night. And, and yeah, so like those powers you feel free to give away. But I think, yeah, again, to answer the question, um, I, I do think that you can fuck up your game a little bit by giving an item that is too powerful uh, if that uh, uh, item is going to make them wildly better at a thing that all the PCs are trying to do. Like every PC is trying to like defeat villains. Right. But Things, if you look at your, if you want to give out cool magic gear, which PCs love, I think PCs love gear that allows them to have new abilities or create awesome scenes in a way that is not related to the mechanics of the game. So that's how I, if you're worried about that, lean in the direction of cool magical gear. Uh, or if you do want to give stuff that does have direct, tangible mechanical benefits, give it cool story shit. Siobhan Thompson in our home game plays literally an el- a half-elven arcane archer. Right. Um, uh, what are you going to do if it's a popular build? Um, <laughs> Uh, and she she has three items that are really broken, that are very, very powerful, dangerous weapons. There are three arrows. It's, what is it? It's Oathkeeper, uh, Spellbreaker, and Heartseeker, and they are powerful, magical arrows that have death effects attached to them with a really high save DC, um, but they only work, on, so Oath, uh, Oathkeeper only works on someone that's broken a promise to her. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Spellbreaker only works on someone that has successfully cast a spell on her. And Heartseeker only works on someone that has broken her heart. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh yeah, these are bro- broken to bits, but they're only so ever going to... they're niche. It's extremely niche. Do, do you roll for your magic items at all? Or do you? Are they always predetermined? Do you like use I tables? Pre-de- I like to predetermine them because I I like it when magic shit is seeded into the story of the world more mm-hmm. rather than like this is a you know an apparatus of Qualish and you're like who the fuck was Qualish and you're like that's a great question. Yeah. Well, what, what I did on this campaign was I went because you know it's it's because it was a module pre written you know it has rule from this table and I went I went through all the tables and I actually made a spreadsheet I listed here's all the magic items I think are going to be interesting to these to my players, and I color code them, I went, here's the table it comes from. And so when they said, hey, I dig through this thing, I'm like, cool, magic. this says roll magic item table B. Okay, what's a magic item from table B that I flagged as being interesting for this person? Yeah. You know, I was like, and oh, you're, just... you're playing a, a warlock of Cthulhu? Here, take a staff of swarming insects. You're gonna have fun with that. Yeah, that's great. But I did, and, and I would roll sometimes, and I'd be like, well, that's no fun. I would just roll, I would say out loud to my players, well, I'm not gonna keep this one and roll again. It's real bummer when you're doing randomly generated magic items, and your PCs get a magic item that truly nobody wants and doesn't fit into anybody's character. It's really underwhelming, and it doesn't feel good. I will say it did lead to one great moment when I was rolling random items, and the halfling, the halfling in the party, went to go get his magic item, and it was a, a potion of diminution. And he, you know, I, and I tell him, and he looks at me, he goes, "Really? You're fucking giving me the? You're giving me the halfling, the goddamn shrinking potion?" <laughs> but honestly, that's great. A little like, adventures on a breakfast table. <laughs> Dodging out of bullshit. Well, he of just—he just, he just was—he you know, did like the full side eye at the camera. <laughs> that shrink. I can get real tiny. Whoa, that's that's gonna be a whole new magical world for me. I love that. As a player, how do I get my fellow PCs to try and move the story along? Part of the fun of D&D is cracking jokes and talking out of character, but we tend to get sidetracked with side conversation. Alternatively, some of my fellow PCs tend to try and loot slash interrogate everyone they see instead of moving towards the sometimes obvious next step in the campaign. That's from Hank. Thanks, Hank. Um, Well, boy, have I been there. This is not even a per-campaign thing. This is like a per-session thing. Sometimes, Sometimes your friends just have the giggles. And they're just yeah. they're just a little loopy, you know? They're not focused. Um, that's a great question. This is this is honestly on DMs and PCs alike. Um, I don't have a hard and fast opinion on this one because I think this really depends. 
I think that these moments of not being focused can be in good faith and can be in bad faith. And, and I mean, and you're so good at that. I mean, I guess people watching the show don't get to see this, but you're really good at just rolling with that kind of stuff. And like, you know, if we get fascinated with an NPC, you'll just sit there and you'll play that NPC and you've got, I mean, you, you didn't have anywhere planned for us to go anyway, so you've got no problem just sitting there and chatting up a storm with them. Well, I, you know, I remember in the office game, because it was a bunch of people that had never played before, that there was a certain degree of people being really cagey about wanting to make big moves in the office game we were playing. So a lot of times, it what people were looking for was like, hey, I want to fuck around with this, with a Gullwig, who is this gnome, uh, not gnome, gnoll, yeah. uh, gnoll, shaman, apothecary. Who lived in the docks. Who lived in the docks, and he lived in a shack that he sold potions out of. And uh, man, people loved Gullwig. They just wanted more He became Gullwig. like the hub. He was the hub he, he of the campaign. Of, became the hub of the to the point where someone asked if they could live with him. That was Mel. That was Melissa. Melissa, yeah, Melissa was like, can I live with you? And he was like, I'm sorry, I met you yesterday. <laughs> I fully don't know you. Uh, but she ended up living with him. Um, uh, <laughs> she still lives there. She still lives there. We she stopped the campaign day. to this day, so we're frozen in time. Um, what I would say is this. Where, so this problem um, isn't actually a root problem. It is a symptom of a number of problems, some of which have fixes and some don't. Yeah. So in other words, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to... Uh, D&D sessions that have a lack of focus because that lack of focus can be coming from a couple different places. I will say this as someone who mostly DMs, a lack of focus on the part of your players can sometimes be from you as a DM not having a clarified story in front of them. And it can be PCs literally protecting themselves and goofing off because there's nothing else for them to do. And that's on you as the DM to find a way to put the story in their hands more and keep it captivating. Yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, the game I ran, it ended up being a pretty, it's a pretty linear, and, and between, I, th I think the, the, the game that the campaign has written is not super great about seeding the plot ideas, but me also as a D new DM wasn't super great about conveying them, and it would, every game they'd open be like, okay, so what the hell were we doing again? What, yeah. what, what's going on right now? You know, and I'd have to be like, well, you're going here to do this thing because of this, and they're like, okay, and then they would just go yeah. and do that thing that I told them they were just doing. Uh, which is not practical advice, but it you know that that is definitely a, a big pitfall of, of seeding seeding those ideas and making sure they really have a strong idea of what they're even su supposed to be doing. Ultimately, the issue is this: people are pursuing their internal goals all the time. The number one goal that your players have when they come to D and D is to have a fun time playing D and D, and if their characters are not fully invested in the world for whatever reason, either through the DM not conveying the stakes of the story or through them as players maybe playing uh, PCs that aren't fully committed to the reality of the world, which is also an issue. Like, I'm not putting all the onus on a DM. The PCs can be there as well. Yeah. I think that if you, if character creation has happened and these players are playing PCs that are thin or cardboardy or kind of not fully in the world, of course you're going to be more goofing off than invested because the world's going to feel flimsy and two-dimensional to you no matter what because you're not yeah. really playing a real person. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say that um, look at your, if you're finding, let me say this, this is not an issue if it happens every once in a great while. Every once in a great while, you're going to have your session start too late in the day. People are going to be coming from work and be tired. The mood in the air is going to be goofy, you know, and people are just going to have a goof off session. Yeah. Every once in a while, that's fine. And, and, and for me, as long as they're in character, like, yeah. if they're goofing off out of character, then, then it becomes a problem of, of, for lack of a better word, discipline at the table. But if they're in character and they're diving into an angle, like, maybe that's just what this, this session or this game needs, needs to be about right yeah. now. And and if they're really you know if they're gonna like my favorite moments as a DM is is ironically when I'm not DMing at all mm. like when when it's, and this sometimes happens with a puzzle or with a challenge but it also can happen if they get really into role playing and I just kind of I just sit back and I watch yeah like that's the most satisfying and fulfilling 
times to be running a game is ironically when you're not when it, when it has I its own it. momentum when the dm can just look around and the pcs are telling a chapter of their own story to themselves that's fucking great um, that happens a lot there's some really great moments like that in season two of dimension Woo! 20 stay tuned um so i would say that now if that lack of focus is coming up over and over and over again i would say the most likely causes of those symptoms would be the dungeon master is is either isn't offering a story at all mm -hmm. has has like made it too sandboxy and it's just like you're here what do you do right so there's not a clear hook or their hook has not factored in human psychology so it's like you're all adventurers you're in a room the wizard tells you to go here and people are going to be fucking around because they're like that's deeply unsatisfying yeah. because my character doesn't have any stakes in on a personal level in what's going on. Why would I stay focused on a quest that doesn't resonate with anything that I've developed for my character? So as a DM, either your story uh, isn't hooked into the PC's motivations, or you don't have enough story. Period. Yeah. The flip side for the PCs is if it's, this is happening over and over again, look at your other PCs and decide for yourself if the if maybe the other pieces of the table are looking for a fuck around game because there are people out there for whom uh, out of character comment, uh, commentary, bantering at the table, whatever else is literally an ideal circumstance. And if that's the case, then I think you need to have a conversation with your other players and yeah. say, we're trying to play two different games. Here. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely important or even, even the characters they've built. Like mm -hmm. there, there was a story I saw once, you know, there's, there's a, a pre-written D&D game that opens with uh, the, the players coming up on a town being attacked by a dragon. And someone mm -hmm. I saw once went, you know, wrote, oh, I'm about to start this game. I'm really worried. What if my players walk up and they're going, well, fuck that, and they leave. And they don't fight the dragon. Jesus. And, and I, I, someone's response was, you know, then you say, okay, those characters leave. They don't fight the dragon. Uh, and then another group of people show up who are the type of people who will fight a dragon because that's what this campaign is. You play those characters. Right, exactly. So I think, yeah, the dodging that bullet of like PCs that are easily distracted or just looting and interrogating everyone, it, what is behind this question, I think more to the point is, it's, it's like, oh, like I, I have a problem with people looting and interrogating all the time or they're getting sidetracked, is what you're, what you're really kind of hinting at here is, I want a deeper level of characterization to the PCs because looting people is really fun and banter at the table is really fun. So what you're talking, in other words, I, let me phrase it this way. The presence of those elements is not a problem. You're describing the absence of this other element, yeah. which is deep commitment and in investment in the characters and the stakes of the story. If that's missing, you probably need to either go back to character development, if it feels like the PCs are generating a lot of that, or as a DM, you need to go back to your story and say, how can I make you feel more involved in this world? Yeah, maybe, and maybe you just need to throw a, throw a bomb in the middle of that conversation and see what happens. <laughs> you know, uh, you know they, they get, they're get, clearly they're comfortable, and maybe yeah. you need to find a way to make them uncomfortable. Create. Not as players, never make your players uncomfortable. But the characters. So make the characters uncomfortable. Yeah, if people and, are and fucking. Put them, put them off ease and find something they're invested in and shake it up. If people are fucking around, that's a great time for a moment of dread, a moment of horror, uh, raising the stakes. You know, like think about what, think about movies and television shows and novels. What interrupts moments of comedic lack of focus in those things? Usually a sudden swelling of stakes. Yeah. So that can be a way to address that as a dungeon master. And, and I will say one thing, because I run my games online, Running a game online does wonders for focus. Yeah, because there's not there, there's none of that cross cross talk or off table chatter and stuff. And and we'll do in like a two or three hour tabletop session would would take like a five or two or three hour online session would take like five or six hours in, I, in an in person game. It's kind of fantastic for an adult with not that much time to play D anD D anymore. <laughs> to to you know that I can't commit an entire half a day to playing that we can really sit down. We can you know come home from work at like seven o'clock and like be done by like 10 and I feel like we've gotten a good amount done. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Uh, guys, this has been Adventuring Academy. Thanks so much for knowing to coming by and talking to us. We'll see you next time. This has been a Dropout Podcast. For video of today's show plus more exclusive series, go to dropout.tv.